copy of your word for ourselves and able to hear the word of God being preached in our free country. How long we are going to have that freedom, I do not know, but we acknowledge that it is a grace and mercy from God Almighty. So bless and honor the truth of your word. Bring conviction to our hearts. Teach us how to grow in grace. We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 and we're talking about the subject today, elections assurance. We begin with Peter's affirmation to God's elect. One question that comes to mind as we read this is how does Peter know, how does any person know that the people to whom he is writing are God's elect, God's chosen people? There doesn't seem to be any doubt in Peter's words. He says, Peter, to God's elect, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are all provinces of the Roman Empire. If someone were to say to you, how do you know who are God's people and who are not? I would venture that your answer would be something like this. Well, no one can be sure, but the best we can do is go on the evidence of a changed life. After all, Jesus taught concerning false teachers. By their fruit, you will recognize them. And the text goes on to reveal, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear uh, bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, conclusion here, By their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, verse 16 and following. We read that and we say to ourselves, this is a fair assessment. We don't have a crystal ball to look into a person's soul to see if he or she is genuine in what is confessed. But neither are we blind to the reality everywhere taught in scripture. Namely that true believers in Christ will be changed in their behavior. You cannot be renewed in your mind which Romans 12 talks about. Romans 12, verse 2. You cannot be renewed in mind and not be transformed in behavior. Again, Jesus taught, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. These make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Matthew 15 
verse 18 and 19. And in the Bible, we know that the concept of heart is a reference to the inner consciousness, the total rationale which rules a person's life, in short, one's thinking. One's thinking. Jesus responded to the scribes who accused him of blasphemy. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Evil thoughts in your hearts. Matthew 9, verse 4. In our day, we think of the heart as the seat of affection. Love. But also motive. We might say to me, say to some person, well, what's in your heart concerning this or that, whatever it might be? And when we say what's in your heart, we're saying to them, well, what do you think about this? How's, how's it, how do you see this? So we're not that far removed from the concept in the scriptures here. So we read people not by being cynical, not by being critical, certainly not by being judgmental, but being being observant. We read them by being observant. We expect that God's people, once they are God's people, will possess a certain decorum compatible with godliness. But, and here it is, if nothing changes... Yeah, if nothing changes, if a person's mouth is still sodded with four-letter expletives, if their demeanor is still crude and rude and obnoxious and immoral and unkind and cruel, we are not bound to give any credence to their profession of loving Jesus and of knowing him as Lord. And sometimes our Arminian brethren have not considered that. They, they just go on the profession. Well, they say they love Jesus. Well, they claim to know Christ as Savior. They walked an aisle. They prayed the prayer. But nothing's changed in their lives. Now, we're not looking for perfection either. No, that's not the case. Else we'd all be condemned, right? I mean, think about it. But, as Jesus put it, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Matthew 10, verse 16. Not gullible, but not censorious either. Now back to Peter. Is there any difference between Peter's perception as an apostle over, let's say, the average perception of us? everyday Christians. I'm asking, does Peter see and know things that elude the common man? Certainly, none of the apostles were omniscient like God. That's not true. And I'm not suggesting that. But what about their insight capability as apostles? I want you to observe Peter's opening address. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. What is an apostle? And how, if at all, does that qualify Peter to make such an assertive statement? Well, an apostle. It's a Greek compound word. So it's got multiple things to it. A-P-O, apo, meaning from, and stello, to send, thus to be sent from. That's what an apostle is. To be sent from. In our text, Peter says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is, sent or commissioned by Christ himself. Now understand here, not commissioned by men in the name of Christ, as we do in ordination of elders, in my case as the pastor and so on, but commissioned directly and personally by Christ. This was one qualification to be an apostle. Every so-called self-named apostle of today's Christian world is bogus because he or she cannot meet this first qualification. Commissioned by Christ himself. In all, there are five biblical qualifications for a person to be an apostle. Number one, I've already alluded to it. They had to be men who were eye and ear witnesses of the gospel of Christ to the world. Jesus, speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit, affirmed that he would the Holy Spirit would, testify about Christ. Now note, and you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. John 15, verse 27. After Jesus' ascension and while the disciples were awaiting the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Peter led the group to select a replacement for the traitor Judas. Here's the qualification Peter put forth. These are his words. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Acts 1, verse 21, 22. First qualification. An apostle had to be one whose message, whose testimony was heard, received firsthand from Christ himself. Not hearsay, 
Not even like in later history with Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, being taught by John. No, not, none of that. So on this basis, I could not claim to be an apostle. I was not there with Jesus, learning from him firsthand. Nor was Polycop, nor was Luther, nor was Calvin, nor were the Wesley brothers. None of them. And no one claiming to be an apostle today meets the first qualification. Taught personally, in person, face to face by the Lord Jesus Christ. It kind of blows the apostolic churches in America out of the water. Men and women claiming to be apostles. Taking a title to themselves for which they have no biblical authority. Secondly, what are the qualifications? Readily mentioned as an apostle. He was a man chosen directly by Christ himself. We say, what about Judas' replacement? I'm glad you asked. We read in the text, in Acts 1, verse 23 and following, so they proposed two men, the disciples did, so they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and the second guy, Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry. Not just a disciple, but apostolic ministry. Which Judas left to go to where he belongs. Yeah, right. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't there choosing Matthias personally, was he? Well, I again refer to you, observe this. The apostles first prayed, Lord... You know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And what does the Bible say about the lot? The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 33. And so Jesus' choice was made clear through the lot. Nothing was the result of lady luck. Historically, Matthias died a martyr's death in Jerusalem by being crucified and then stoned and finally beheaded after ministering for years in Ethiopia as an apostle chosen by Christ to serve in the place of Judas. 
Thirdly, every apostle was infallibly inspired to declare the doctrines of Christ. Infallibly inspired. Infallible means incapable of error. Not because they were super intellectuals. Peter was a fisherman who was an apostle. But because as he testified in 2 Peter 2 verse 21, and I alluded to this verse earlier, Here's Peter's words. No prophecy ever had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? Peter was one of those men. This was Jesus' promise to them. Let me read it for you. John 14. The Counselor, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. John 14, verse 26. Paul testified of himself, who was later to be called an apostle. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Galatians 1, verse 11 and 12. And he went on to explain how this happened with him, since he was not among the original twelve apostles, he says. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I immediately went into Arabia, that is the desert, and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years... Three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and I stayed with him for 15 days. Galatians 1, 15 through 18. So Paul, no less than Peter or John or any of the other apostles, was taught directly by Christ and received infallible revelations of the things he taught in the gospel No man, no woman living today can make this claim. There is no more prophecy. There is no more revelation. The Bible is complete. And the men who wrote the New Testament were people that were taught directly by Christ himself. Fourthly, every apostle had the power to perform miracles. I'm talking about real miracles. Not the shenanigans that go on in charismatic circles in the name of miracles. Those are a disgrace both to the dignity and the power of the apostolic office. By the way, we're watching a tape. You can come tonight. And it's, it's on evangelists. I put that in quotes. <laughs> evangelists in America and the crazy things they do. In the name of God. So come on out tonight and we'll show some more of that. It's a two hour. We've already looked at one half hour. 
So we got a ways to go. We'll do another half hour tonight on the evangelists in America. But a true apostle had the power to perform stupendous miracles. Let me read some of them for you. Consider these. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and they rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. And these signs will accompany those who believe. That is those of the eleven who were skeptical at first of the resurrected Lord. But they repented of their unbelief and God empowered them to go and be his representatives. In my name, reading scripture, my name they will drive out demons. They will pick, speak in new tongues or languages. They will pick up snakes with their hands. When they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Mark 16, verses 14 through 18. And that's Mark's great commission passage. I think we were watching on one of the places on this tape we're looking at guy was walking towards one of these faith healers in crutches and somebody came up behind him and forced him to sit down not not get up on the platform to be healed he was really crippled really walking with crutches and was going to put a test to the faith healer <laughs> can you heal me and somebody made the guy sit down and not proceed to go well in the scripture the real miracles took place and they weren't forbidden to come to Christ Acts 2 verse 43 the day of Pentecost we read everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles This is the same group of 11 plus Matthias who spoke in foreign languages that day to the crowd in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Two other incidents of speaking in tongues, Acts 10.46, Cornelius' house, Acts 19, verse 6, at Ephesus. Disciples of John the Baptist, but on both occasions, Peter and Cornelius' house, Paul at Ephesus, the apostles were present preaching the gospel and this miraculous ability to speak in foreign languages was also evident. We read, then the disciples, the eleven, went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied them. Mark 16, verse 20. Who in our day can duplicate such things? 
As a result, I'm reading scripture. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Acts 5, verse 15 and 16. We see any of that going on today? Just the shadow of the so-called faith healer falling on people? Again, we read in Acts 19, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and their evil spirits left them. Acts 19, verse 11, verse 12. I want you to think about that. They took a handkerchief from the Apostle Paul touched him with their handkerchief, took it back to the sick person, and the sick person was healed as a result. Let me tell you, that's real healing power, is it not? And what was God's reasoning behind these stupendous miracles? Paul told the Corinthian church, the things that mark an apostle Signs and wonders and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I never was a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12. So these things in particular, signs, wonders, miracles are said to be the marks of an apostle. And the Corinthians experienced that with the ministry of Paul. That's the fourth qualification for an apostle. These stupendous miracles. Number five. The apostolic authority was extended to all of Christendom, not just to a particular locale. So I'm pastor here at Thornville, but beyond these walls, my responsibility to be a pastor to others is not found. My business of feeding of the flock ends except in areas of evangelism or if I'm invited to be a guest speaker somewhere. My authority has no universally binding obligation. None. But Paul could say, and let me read it for you, besides everything, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 28. So in his missionary journeys we are told. As they traveled from town to town. They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles. And elders in Jerusalem. For the people to obey. So the churches. Plural. Were strengthened in the faith. And grew daily in number. Acts 16 verse 4 and 5. 
You see the sweeping ministry of the apostles. Not just in a particular one church, Jerusalem, let's say, but all over where missionary endeavors went. To the church at Ephesus. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on, here it is, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2, verse 19 and 20. So we see here the extent of the authority of the apostles. They, with the prophets, with Christ himself, comprise the foundation upon which God's household is constructed. Now where's the prophet, the preacher, or the theologian who can make such a boast in our day? Well, I know there are some out there that claim to be apostles, but we're seeing here what the groundwork is for an apostle. Coming back to 1 Peter, to his statement, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, I ask again, is there any difference between Peter's perception as an apostle over the average Christian. Can he say, with full authority and without contradiction, Peter to God's elect? I answer with this historical narrative. Philip, a deacon in the church of Jerusalem, went by apostolic commission to Samaria to preach the gospel. Through Philip's preaching and attesting miracles, people were converted. But there was no outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts 8, verse 14 and 15 says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent... Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And it was successful. The apostles were successful where Philip was not. A convert named Simon Magnus, Simon the Great, that's what his name means, professed faith in Christ and repentance from his sorcery powers. He was a sorcerer. He used to amaze fellows as people as they looked at what he could do. Satanic powers. Supposedly converted under Philip's ministry. In Samaria. Let me read it for you. Simon himself, this is not Peter, this is Simon the sorcerer, believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Acts 8, verse 13. However, when Simon saw the coming of the Holy Spirit, Upon the converts, 
by the laying on of hands by Peter and John, the apostles, he offered them money to give him that power. You see, he was still thinking of how he could make the supernatural pay. Philip, the deacon, never saw this in this guy. Philip baptized Simon, the sorcerer, welcomed him as a member into the newly founded Samaritan church. To Philip, Simon was the genuine article. But Peter, when he came to Samaria, said to Simon, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right with God. Repent of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Acts 8 verse 20 through 23. Have we not admitted that none of us can read another man's heart? That's true. We confess that we do not know motives at all when dealing with one another. Yet Peter makes this determination about Simon the sorcerer. He says, your heart is not right before God. I say that you are full of bitterness and captive. To sin. What I am saying here is that Peter the Apostle had insight that Philip the deacon turned evangelist did not. And so when Peter says in our text, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout, and so on, these various Roman provinces, it is the first assurance these people are given in this text, that all is well with their souls. I want you to think about this. In verse 6 he says, Now for a little while you suffer grief in all kinds of trials. One of the things that Satan does when trials come into our lives trials, I might add, of which he is the instigator, is to try to convince us that our profession of faith must be insincere, else why would we be suffering? Worse, he suggests to us that in the trial we are not God's people, that God has never considered us so, that we in the end are not forgiven, not born from above, not a believer, certainly not God's elect. That's what Satan does when he sends trials our way. So along comes Peter, commissioned by Christ himself, an apostle with Holy Spirit insight, the ability to read men's hearts, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge 
of God the Father. Now tell me that wouldn't be a shot in the arm spiritually to those in the midst of trials. I can say it more personally. If you were the person in trouble, if you were the person in trial, under persecution, and Peter addressed you as God's elect, would anyone, Satan included, be able to crush your spirit or dampen your confidence? I don't think so. I think he would sigh a sigh of relief that one of God's apostles could see the genuineness of your faith and had assured you that, hey, yes, Jesus is your Savior and you belong to him. That's apostolic authority. The assurance that election gives is that God's choice of you was and is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling by his blood. What does it mean, foreknowledge? Well, foreknowledge is future knowledge, but it is more than the commonly heard explanation. Here's the common explanation. Our Arminian brethren use this definition. It goes like this. God looked down the corridor of time, and he saw that you would believe in Jesus upon hearing the gospel, and so, so, on the basis of what he foresaw, he chose you to be his child. If you follow the logic of that, it means that God chose you when he saw that you chose him. And that means that you elected yourself into God's family and God rubber stamped or ratified your decision. How crazy. I then become my own savior, which the Bible everywhere denies. Brethren, God never reacts. He never reacts. He is always the first cause. We're the ones that react. He acts. We react to what God does. What about this doctrine of foreknowledge? Well, the word is a compound word. I'm talking about the Greek now. Pro, meaning before, and genosis, the Greek word to know. So, prognosis, to know beforehand. That's what foreknowledge means. In English, when you say to the doctor who has diagnosed you with your disease, what is my prognosis? You're asking him or her for a prediction. You're asking him or her for a forecast as to your future. Am I going to get better? 
Will there be any lingering disability? And with a human doctor, you are simply asking him to make an educated guess based upon his experience with other people that have the same disease. Let me say categorically, do not bring that definition over into the spiritual realm. God does not make educated guesses about the people who may or may not become his family. With God, foreknowledge is tied inescapably with foreordination. Say, well, what do you mean by that? Take the word no by itself. No. Does a doctor know how long you will live with colon cancer? No. He takes a guess using established calculations. Guessing isn't knowing. To know something, that something has to be certain. It has to be a fact set in concrete. It has to be true. When God knows something, it's because what he knows is certain to occur. It's not maybe, it's not might be, it's not hmm, perhaps. It is known by God, if it is known by God, it is reality. And what makes a thing certain is the foreordination of God. That is, he planned it. He has determined what will occur. There's no equivocation. There's nothing to intercept or deter it from ever happening. And that brings us down to this definition that everything God's know, God knows, everything God knows or says he knows is F A C T. It's fact. Otherwise, he doesn't know it. If it's fact, he has determined that it will be. So we could say that foreknowledge is God knowing what is fact. That's how he knows it. He foreplanned it. It's coming. It's fact. So like saying the person knows what he's doing. What he's planned. And the scripture says that no one can deter his power. Change his course of direction. Make him, God, do anything they want done. Or stop God from doing anything he wants done. What about election? How do we understand it? Well, there's two accounts. Both of them are in the book of Romans. 
and explains foreknowledge and elections. Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This text links foreknowledge with predestination or foreordination. It does not say that God foreknew what people would do in response to the gospel, though he knows that too. Rather, it says that what he foreknew was people. Let me read it for you. Those God foreknew. That's what the text says. Who are they? Well, they are the predestined. Who become the called. Who become the justified or forgiven. And eventually the glorified when we get to glory. Now, how does election occur? What's the basis for God's choice? The answer is in Romans 9. And Paul answers by using the historical account of Rebecca and her children. Here's what he writes. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works, But by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Question. Answer. Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort. But on God's mercy. Romans 9 verse 11 and following. Or the psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 37 verse 20. The wicked will perish. The Lord's enemies will be like the beauty of the fields. They will vanish. Vanish like smoke. Was Esau wicked? Well, Hebrews 12:16 says that he was an immoral and godless man. That's what it says. Was Jacob wicked? His very name means deceiver, doesn't it? He certainly lived up to that namesake till God changed his heart. Did Esau ever do anything good? Did Jacob You see where I'm going here. We're looking for some clue to justify God's decision to love Jacob and hate Esau, to choose Jacob, reject Esau, when Paul says that God's choice was made before the twins were born, before they had done anything good or bad. There's nothing in sinners, either by works that commend them or by deeds that condemn them. There's nothing in that that influences God and his decision. Why is that? In order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works, 
but by him who calls. What Paul is saying here is that God does not check performance records for all sin, all fall short of God's glory. His choice is simply, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You see, we're so used to uh, looking for cause and effect. And God comes along and says, you know, I'm just going to have mercy on who I want to have mercy. And we're saying to ourselves, yeah, God, we understand that, but um, what was it in Jacob that you saw that uh, made him a better choice than he saw his brother? And God is saying to us again, it didn't depend on man's desire or effort, but on my mercy. And we're saying, yeah, we're so thankful that you're merciful, uh, but what was the rationale for you to be merciful? And God says, there was no rationale. I didn't find it in Esau. I didn't find it in Jacob. It's just in me to have mercy on who I want to have mercy. Did Esau ever do anything good? Did Jacob? God's choice was made before the twins were born and had done anything good or bad. That's not the criteria. There is nothing in sinners, either by works that commend them or by deeds that condemn them, that influences God's decision. Why is that? Because God's purpose and election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. I'm very frankly saying that this baffles us because all that we do, we do with strings attached to it. I will love you if you will love me. I will work for you if you pay me. I will advance at my job if the boss likes my performance. But God comes along, he looks at us in all of our sin and unrighteousness, and he says simply, I will be merciful to you. And that mercy was determined in the mind of God before time began, when you were but a thought. And he foreordained you and foreknew you and chose you and adopted you and wrote your name with indelible blood in the Lamb's book of life. And not all the forces of hell can change that. Though we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God's foreknowledge in election is the second assurance to Peter's audience. How so? 
but their sin did not deter Christ dying for them. They have been sprinkled clean by his blood, verse 2. So their good deeds do not compel God to love them, for there is none good, not even one. Mercy found them, and grace sanctified them by the Holy Spirit. Persecuted or not, they are foreknown, foreloved, foreordained, elect of God, and no amount of devilish harassment or physical trials can ever separate them from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Wow. No wonder that Peter can say, as he does say, grace and peace be yours in abundance, verse 2. The question could be asked, do you know God? But it's even more important a question to ask, does God know you? Now, not about you. Of course, he knows about you. But if he knows you, as the Bible uses the word knows, if he knows you, then he loves you. And if he loves you, you are his now and for all of eternity. So as sinners today, we should plead with God to make himself known to us. To be merciful to us as he was with Jacob and with so many others in biblical history. The gospel is Ephesians 2 verse 4 and 5. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. Mercy reached down to us when we could not reach up to God. And when we're talking about mercy, folks... We're not talking about every last person on earth. God is not obligated to be merciful to every last person on earth. What does he say? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. End of discussion. Period. Yeah, but. No, there's no yeah, buts. It's I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And if you're saved this morning, you are a child of mercy. And you need to praise God for that. So what about my family? What about my kids? What about my relatives? Well, pray that the Lord will do for them exactly what he's done for you. That he will be merciful to them. Yeah, but they're my kids. They're my relatives. God owes you no obligation They're going to have to come the same way. God's going to have to be merciful to them. And in dealing with justice, no one has a claim on mercy. No one. 
Found guilty, the judge says. Here's the sentence. Wages of sin, death. Yeah, but I want mercy. You might want it, but you're not entitled to it. God has to grant it when he grants it. It's not some kind of a bargaining chip. He has mercy on whom he wants. Say, well, how can I influence? You can't influence God. Salvation, Jonah says, is of the Lord. Yeah, but I'm in the belly of this big fish. I don't deserve this. God says, you're staying until I command the beast to vomit you out on dry land. We are all at the mercy of God. And how he displays that mercy is up to him. Father, we thank you for your word. This is a concept of God that the Bible portrays. We're not used to it. We're used to a God that uh, men manipulate. They manipulate him through their prayers. They figure if they pray something, God is obligated to answer that prayer the way they prayed it. God forbid that he'd ever say no. But he does say no at times. And we have to pray according to your will. So we are subject to your will. We cannot twist the arm of God to get him to do what we want him to do. But we plead with you, Lord Jesus, be merciful to our families as you have been to us. We know they don't deserve it any more than we did. But we plead it nonetheless. Be merciful and save those whom we love. Make them a part of your family too. For your glory and their good, we pray these things. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, the Red Hymnal, 469. Shall we stand together?
Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, for the power of the gospel. We cannot change a person's heart at all. It is an every word is a frustration because we can't effect the change but you can. And so as we close our service today, we pray your power upon our loved ones and upon our neighbors and upon our nations. Constrain your people to come. May your word find place in the hearts of those we love. And may you bring them to the foot of the cross where they will find forgiveness, and redemption. We pray this firstly for our glory, but also for your glory, for our good. Unless you do this, Lord, the good that is going to take people to glory will never occur. You must break through our sin and rebellion. And make your grace known. Bless us this day. Be with us tonight as we again gather to hear your word. Amen.